Assalamu alaikum everyone, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Welcome to an incredible Tuesday session. Wednesday session, it's so incredible, it's Wednesday. Um, today is truly a momentous occasion. Um, you know, I, I wanted to start by just saying that, um, you know, part of the blessing, I guess, of doing everything online and recording everything is also, it's just an ongoing testimony um, over time and I am starting to imagine like what it will be like you know maybe in a year or two or ten years inshallah if YouTube is still alive and there hasn't been like a solar flare that's taken out all the electronics but if you get to come back and you get to watch these these halakas again um, it's it's sort of exciting to be able to come back and see like where we were in in our journey so right now we have completed I believe it's seven sixty seven halakas in the Project Illumin style. And um, as, as people know, the way we, we choose the order of covering is um, through prayer and Sheikh prays on it. And um, it's interesting to go back, I think, and, and look at some of our previous recordings and see where we were. So I, I think of this as a bit of a testimony as to where we are in the journey and where our mind is, because certainly, you know, we've made quite a, a, a lot of progress since the beginning, um, which it feels like a blink of an eye ago, but it's like oceans of knowledge ago. So we started back, you know, last um, June with um, Surah Al-Hadid, um, and we were doing halakas like kind of once a month, sometimes once every two months. We got through eight uh, Project Illumin halakas before we came here to Ohio and really jumped in and started doing it really intensely. Um, starting at the end of January and then from there pretty much we have gone two halakas a week and now you know made it all the way to our 67th surah um, and it's amazing how life goes up and down and how just the intensity of things um, so you know for the sake of people who who are not here with us you know here in Ohio um, I just wanted to share a little bit about what a slice of life is like and especially right now because um, as you know, Sheikh is teaching um, back at the law school. And so he teaches um, you know, two hours of class every Tuesday and Thursday, public international law. So it's a four unit heavy duty class. It's three hours. Oh, three hours, okay. Are you sure? Oh, okay. It was four hours last time he taught, so I mean, it's my mistake. But nevertheless, there's still a lot of hours of preparation um, the night before. Um, so that is preparation on Monday and Wednesday night. And then, as you know, with Usuli, we had typically done um, halakas Tuesday nights, and because of the teaching schedule now, it, um, to, for the fall semester, we've moved it to Wednesday. Um, but then Thursday night comes, um, and that's preparation for the Friday chutbah. And then after the Friday chutbah comes preparation Friday night for the Saturday halakha. So you're talking about preparation or teaching from literally Monday all the way through Saturday night. And these are like, I think we calculated, it's like 20 hours of just speaking, not to even speak of, you know, the, the preparation that goes in. And then when you teach a full, uh, you know, full semester, when you're engaged with your students at the law school, you know, all that comes with that is, you know, the, um, the, the student requests and, you know, the different papers and things that need to happen. Meanwhile, you know, there's still PhD students that need to have their dissertation um, defenses. So we had a dissertation defense last week, and so of course that requires reading the dissertation. And then there are other activities that the, the sheikh is involved in, which is like reviewing manuscripts for publication. Um, and you know, of course, then people who are reaching out for all kinds of questions that have to do with life and fatwas and everything like that. 
So the only moment you really actually have to sort of catch your breath, excuse me, is Sunday, maybe. Um, and, um, but it's an, ever going, it's an ongoing process and there are just constant demands that come through. So, you know, it's like I, I will often get messages from people that are like, oh, you know, I'm so happy you're in Ohio. We would love to come just sit with you in the sheikh and just, you know, spend time with you. Or can you please organize um, some kind of gathering so scholars can talk to you about, you know, the Quran project and, you know, all this stuff. You know, there's so many demands one after another. And it's all that we can do to, you know, try and just keep our head above water and really focus on the Quran because I think we came here. Um, with the intention of covering every single surah and and making our way through and surviving and um, so it's just to give people a sense of like you know the demands that are on you especially at this particular moment in time so it was interesting the other night I guess it was last night I don't know every day goes by so quickly where I came home and um, you know Sheikh was in the middle of doing emails um, which is its own like full-time job and um, someone said to him, or, uh, he, he said to me, okay, here's the decision. We're either going to do a line-by-line halakha, which means that he, you're going to go back to a halakha that he's already previously done, so it doesn't require much, you know, in terms of preparation. Um, and then he can just add sort of the Project Illumin, um, you know, insight into it. Or we are going to just not have a halakha and we'll hold off until Saturday. So these guys here know that when, you know, when I get posed with that question, I'm like, what, what are you talking about? No, you have to pray on it. You can't just decide, you know, that you're, you're gonna go back and do another halakha um, or another surah. You have, to, um, <coughs> you have to go and pray on it. Because I really believe that, you know, we are getting these surahs in um, an order of revelation that was chosen for us by God for our particular time and it's, you know, we don't want to break that chain. I think there was one, um, <coughs> excuse me, one surah um, that was not prayed on, and that was like the second week that we were here in Ohio. It was a Tuesday, so we were trying to be intentional about picking a short surah, and that was the only time where, where Sheikh picked one that was short so we could meet the time restraint, and he didn't pray on it. But I think from there, we really just decided that it's really important that we wanted God to select the order of um, surahs that we covered. So after I had my little, you know, like, what are you talking about? No, you can't not pray. You have, you know, and gave him, you know, my usual lecture about how you have to, like, just stay the course and, you know, don't worry. Um, God obviously knows how burdened you are and how busy you are and how tired you are. I'm sure God will be merciful and not give you, like, a really difficult surah. And, you know, it's, it's going to be okay, you know? So I left him, and later in the evening he went to go pray on the Sora. And all of a sudden I heard this, like, shriek from one of our friends who was over who discovered the sheikh in this sort of state of panic, or not panic, but state of, like, oh, my God. Walked in. What's wrong? Did you pray on the surah? Yes. What did you get? Surah Baqarah. <laughs> oh my god. And he prayed on it twice. And the answer came back, Surah Baqarah. So we were all like, oh my god. <laughs> um, the, you know, so I think people around here understand the devastation <clears throat> and the excitement. And you know, it's obviously a Wednesday night, which is you know, um, the middle of the week. So we encouraged him, well, maybe we shouldn't start Wednesday. Maybe we can just hold off till Saturday so you have a little bit more time to prepare. 
and he decided, well, let me take a look at my notes and let me decide whether I want to move forward with it. And he actually did, then decided, no, let's let's just let's start and let's just do it. But you know, just to give you a flavor of like kind of what goes on behind the scenes, and it's like it kind of reminds me of when Sheikh is telling us about Asura and like, okay, you know, the Muslims were really getting persecuted and you know you would probably expect a message of comfort or a message of you know consolation but no God comes in <laughs> and says just keep you know you've got to persevere you got to do it so I feel like we got one of those messages um, and you know the thing about Surah Bakara is I think that it's kind of weird to say but because we've done 67 surahs um, I think we all sort of expected that we would get Bakara like at the end of this whole journey so, you know, it's the longest chapter, it's the most difficult chapter, you know. Um, I think we just figured, okay, maybe we'll get to it by next summer. So when we got it on a late on Tuesday night, things really got real very fast. And I think we're really, it was really shocking because I think for all of us, when you get Bakara, it's like, okay, now we're really deep in the game. This is serious. And... Um, so we're all like very excited, us here. Poor Sheikh is like burdened under like a mountain of weight. And I just wanted to, you know, share with you just everything that he's got going on so you understand like, you know, it's one thing for us to show up and be like, yay, we're so excited, here we are to, ready to receive. But the burden on Sheikh to actually deliver and prepare is monumental. Um, so I'm so grateful um, and, you know, I, I feel a little bit responsible for like, you know, pushing him to say, no, you have to pray on the surah and you have to do whatever God tells you to do. But, you know, this is what God wants and I truly believe that, you know, we don't have to obviously finish it, you know, in, in one day. We're not going to, obviously. But, you know, just the, the order of revelation, I think, is really what, to me, is really meaningful and critical because we've seen on this journey that, the order has been so, you know, direct and specific and pertinent to what we've been experiencing here, to what we're experiencing at large in the world. Um, and I do believe that for our time, there's something really important about the, the order of revelation for us. So, um, you know, and, and just as, I guess, like, you know, a last little side story, um, I happened to come across, you know, on Facebook, um, someone sharing a YouTube video. It was a discussion between a Muslim who had left Islam and started a channel called Friendly Ex-Muslim and decided to invite a convert who um, has a, a Facebook page called The Sharing Group um, who has written extensively um, about you know, the convert experience and has you know, gone through a lot of very interesting experiences and has trained with very shuyuk and is very knowledgeable from what I could tell from watching the video that I had watched. And what was so striking to me was that this person who identifies as the friendly ex-Muslim takes so much pride in being an ex-Muslim. When you watch this video, and maybe we can share the link, I don't know, I haven't finished watching it, but you know, he's a nice guy. He is reacting to basically a lot of the stupidity that we talk about, you know, in the context of you know, what our situation is as Muslims today and how people don't take the Quran seriously and how, you know, they're, they really just um, believe like the Wahhabi version and base their decisions on that. 
so many of the questions that were raised in this video were directly addressed by what we have covered here in this halakha, and even by the, the, the guest speaker, um, his name is um, Terence Yunus. Um, and I, I felt that, you know, how sad it is that, you know, here's the answer right here. It just requires that people take the Quran seriously and study and, you know, to go from being like, okay, you know, I really don't like what I see in the Muslim spaces, so now I'm going to be an ex-Muslim and I don't even believe in God. Actually, actually he's an atheist. Um, you know, that's a very extreme reaction because you don't like what other Muslims do. And, you know, when the answer is just education and knowledge and hard work and you can find so much um, and, and not, like, lose your soul to, you know, the... Um, just so much of what we've learned here happens if you if you don't study the Quran and don't take it seriously. I just felt like you know I it underscores again for me the importance of what we're doing here, and I really pray that you know so many of these these young people who want to find meaningful Islam and are so turned off by what they see um, among Muslims today that they will eventually, inshallah, find their way to this tafsir. Because this, this tafsir is so life-transforming and so meaningful for, for your soul. Um, and it's it's just a, a sad state of affairs. But anyway, with all of that, I, um, I'm i so excited and um, and so sorry. That, <laughs> but, but sorry, not sorry, um, for this for this wonderful halakha, Surah Baqarah. And, um, I pray that Allah will, will strengthen Shaykh and help all of us um, learn what we need to learn. Because he told me in, an, in, a, in a moment last night that we don't understand. With Surah Baqarah, everything changes. Everything is different. The accountability is higher. And I was asking him, well, what do you mean? And he said, I can't even say, you'll see what I mean, but everything changes. So inshallah, um, I, I'm excited. and. So yes, it, it is true that um, now we have to do Surat al-Baqarah, uh, but th let the um, record reflect that I do blame Grace. <laughs> um, it is entirely her fault. And let the record reflect that Grace has an enormous amount of trust in my prayers. Uh, I don't have that same level of trust in my prayers. Um, so, you know, but I did pray twice on, on the surah and the, the same answer came twice, Baqarah. Uh, I really didn't want to do Baqarah. Uh, I thought, that maybe, or at least I was hoping that we would get to Baqarah maybe around the summer. That the tafsir, Qadr Allah ma Allah chooses. Um, 
know, to the, to the best of my, my knowledge. But, um, subhanAllah, I mean, you, you pause for a second and, and oh, uh, um, when Grace said that she heard the shriek, what, what actually happened was that one of the students came to the den and saw me sort of comatose, uh, staring at the wall. And she said, what's wrong? And I wouldn't answer. I was in shock. And then finally it came out and it said, well, it's Surah Al-Baqarah. So I wasn't, I wasn't excited, I wasn't panicking, I was just in shock. Um, yeah, completely comatose. It took me about an hour of staring at the wall and uh, wondering what I've done wrong and whether Allah is punishing me. <laughs> and maybe that after all, maybe Allah really hates me and um, is angry at me. And, you know, I had to resolve these existential questions um, before getting my head on straight again. SubhanAllah, I mean, Surah, the, the, you pause for a second because you you think that, okay, and we'll talk about, uh, there's going to have to be some laying out a foundation that's a little bit longer than what we're accustomed to in the tafsirs. By the time Surah Al-Baqarah is revealed, you have a group of Muslims a, not a huge group, but a sizable enough group that have received the Qur'an that we've received to date. By the time Al-Baqarah is revealed, there are 60 plus surahs have been revealed. And it stays with you that the 60 plus surahs that were revealed had transformed this group of people sufficiently so that they became ready to receive Surah Al-Baqarah. And they became ready to be the recipients of, of all that Surah Al-Baqarah will imply. It struck me when I was first working on this project 10 years ago, and it struck me again last night, can I really say that anyone that I've known has been transformed by the 60 plus surahs revealed like the Sahaba were. And yes, taking account of historical exaggerations and um, the tendency to to 
a streamlined history after the fact, but still, even if you account for all of that, what the, the historical moment that we're considering is really profound and really burdensome. Um, and again, you know, 10 years ago, I had to ask myself, uh, has the Quran really transformed me? The, the, what are studied in the Meccan surahs, have they made me into a human being ready to receive all that will come in the Medina period and all that Allah uh, sets out for us? And that's one of the hardest questions, I mean, to, to ask personally and to, to try to make sense of the place of the Qur'an in the modern age, um, especially in the relationship, in terms of the relationship of, of the, the modern Muslim mind and its, um, the way it relates to the word, the way it relates to the way that words signify meaning and the way that meaning interacts with consciousness and the way that consciousness in a, in a very dynamic way um, is impacted by meaning and in return impacts meaning and so on. I mean, the word is not just the way we communicate with others, but it is also the way we communicate with ourselves. Um, a lot of times, words can bracket our thinking and can package our thinking and can um, define our thinking. A lot of times, if we don't have words for something, we don't know how to think about it. And a lot of times, the nuances of the, the way that we attach meaning to a word shapes our psychology in a very significant ways. To make this a bit more concrete, when I started the Ulum project, um, I if you remember, we started out with, with pilot halakas, and the pilot halakas were designed to test whether I actually should, because I was very skeptical that, that whether I should do this, because I knew what would be entailed, and yes, my wife is a religious fanatic, um, but I'm not so fanatic. Um, no, um, I, I I tend to be far more reserved. Uh, so yeah, she was very excited. I wasn't. Anyway, um, and the pilot Holocaust convinced me. Okay, fine. So th this is what we should do. This is what definitely should be done. But I was hoping that by the time we reach Surah Al-Baqarah that this tafsir 
would have become established on firm grounds, meaning that there would have been a critical mass of people. And subhanAllah, there's good news and there's bad news. The good news is I myself, although I don't tend to be a very cheery person, uh, Grace is always a cup half full, I'm always a cup half empty. Um, but I, even with my half empty outlook, I was surprised at the number of messages or correspondence we've gotten that says something like, uh, thank you, you've saved my faith, uh, I was, ha you know, or you, I had stopped practicing or I had left Islam and I've come about your tafsir and it brought me back and subhanAllah there have been so many of these messages and, and that's, uh, but I've noticed that these messages, although they come from all around the world, I mean even from a lot of Muslim countries and a lot of Arabic speaking countries and India and Pakistan and Indonesia and Malaysia and so on. Um, but they're so dispersed that it is clear that where institutional Islam is, including institutional Islam in the West, this tafsir remains thoroughly on the margin. So where institutional Islam is, I even, through prayer, as well, um, because I do tend to pray on a lot of things, or maybe everything. Uh, I I know that institutionally, people who have never heard the word of the tafsir continue to um, be dismissive and. The, you know, I, I've heard, I hear from, from everything, everything from uh, I am a Mu'tazili to I am a Shi'i to I am a Sufi to I am a, um, an, a rationalist to I am Ikhwan to I mean everything. Maybe the only thing is I don't think anyone said I'm communist. Has, has that happened? No. No. Okay. Um, or an atheist. Although, although a liberal fasuk, I've heard. Anyway, so for whoever hears this, um, as we enter and we deal with Surah Al-Baqarah, I, I, I force myself to say this because it's a testimony before God that I will take with me to the grave. Um, if you think that there is anything like this out somewhere in the Muslim world, sadly, very sadly, you're mistaken. Um,
for whatever it's worth, if what you hear in this tafsir strikes you as the voice of haq, the voice of truth, um, then you have to come to terms with the reality that sadly, for whatever it's worth, it's quite singular. Now, that doesn't mean it's right. It just means it's singular. Um, it doesn't mean that it's even good. It just means it's singular. Whether it's right, whether it's good, what it is, you have to decide. That is between you and Allah, and you have to decide. Um, so, and I think you will see this as we deal with Surah Al-Baqarah in ways that perhaps you could not have imagined. So, here we go. Alright. So, Surah Al-Baqarah, by the opinion of most scholars, is the fairest, well, the opinion of most scholars is that it is the first revelation in Medina. Some scholars that say this surah, shorter surah, was revealed before Surah Al-Baqarah, or that surah was revealed before Surah Al-Baqarah, but the majority of scholars say Surah Al-Baqarah is the first revelation in Medina. And it is a long surah, the longest in the Quran, as I'm sure you know. Some reports say that parts of Al-Baqarah were not revealed till even the last year of the Prophet's life, But I always remain skeptical of these reports. Um, this might this this is unorthodox to a lot of scholars, but for me, the thematic unity of the surah makes me very skeptical of the idea that there was fill-ins through the years. I'm not saying that it couldn't happen. I'm just saying that I'm skeptical. And Surah Al-Baqarah is it, it performs so many functions that I'm not sure how many halakas it will take us to cover it. And today, I'm not even sure how much we'll, we'll, we'll manage to cover, but, you know, we'll, we'll go, um, probably there won't be Q&A, &Q um, but we'll, we'll go as maybe till 9, 9.30 and then stop. Okay. So we have to stay, take a step back and 
situate Surah Al-Baqarah and understand it correctly. As we've seen in various surah in the Quran, the Quran speaks in bits and pieces about Musa السلام, about the Israelites, about some of the Israelite prophets, and about Jesus السلام, and about Maryam السلام. And we've gone through the Meccan surah that have these segments where they talk about the Jesus, Musa, etc. But the Quran up to this point doesn't have a full engagement with either Christians or Jews. What Muslims know about Christians or Jews is what Arabs uh, knew and just from their, their own Arab culture and what the Quran says about biblical prophets although there is no full-scale engagement with biblical prophets or people of the book. All right. Now, this makes perfect sense because the number of Christians that represent part of Meccan culture and society is very limited and no Jewish tribes. Jewish tribes come to Mecca as merchants, but they depart. The reality in Medina presents Muslims with a, a, a new challenge. Um, With a new challenge, because of the complexity that exists in Medina. Medina, as I've mentioned before, is had been plagued with a civil war between the Aus and the Khasraj. That civil war has been going on for about a hundred years. There are the the Khasraj themselves are divided into six clans. The Aus, different reports say divided into two clans or that they were all only a single clan. Furthermore, Medina doesn't have an, a, a, um, a productive religious services industry like Mecca does um, 
And to make things worse, Medina is known for a recurrent plague that um, causes a considerable amount of illness and disease that makes Medina a rather undesirable place. Now, there are three Jewish tribes in Medina. There's Banu Qunayniqa, there is Banu Nadir, and Banu Qurayza. And Banu Qunayniqa and Banu Nadir are allied with the Khazraj, with the Khazraj clan, clan, tribe. And uh, Banu Qurayza are allied with the Aus. And the Jewish tribes have sometimes actually fought against each other as a function of their alliance. So Banu Qurayza has sometimes clashed with Banu Qunaynaqa and Banu Nadir um, because of their alliance with the Aus and Khazraj. However, all three tribes have have a a a robust money lending operation and a robust weapons industry they were uh, especially Banu Quraiza were ironsmiths were um, uh, yeah what do you call um, metalsmiths um, where they 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 were particularly adept adept in manufacturing swords and knives and the like okay the muhaji the muhajirun as you know the the uh, meccan muslims have left their properties back and there is there are negotiations between the those in Medina who had converted and what percentage of Medina converted before the prophet arrives there we don't know but it's probably not as high as many historical sources say it was um, what is clear is that Medina sees in the prophet in the prophet a way of ending the civil war, getting out of the um, the turbulence and the economic depression and the uh, hardship that has been eating away at Medina for a very long time and there is even evidence of some superstitious belief that maybe if this man comes to Medina then maybe the uh, the plague will not keep the eating away at which is rather interesting because one of the things that happen when the Muslims do migrate to Medina is they themselves fall victims to the plague and many of them become ill, and some of them die, and so on. Anyway, and I'll tell you why I'm mentioning this point. One of the 
So there are negotiations before the Hijra, and the negotiations, the, the conclusion of these negotiations is that influential members of the tribes of Aus and Khazraj decide that instead of uh, appointing a man, uh, what's his name, Bin Salul, as a king, as the sort of a, a, as a, 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 there was some talk that they would appoint him as a king over them and that he would bring an end to the civil war. They decide to forget about him and instead go with their alliance with the Prophet and that the Prophet would come and become the effective ruler of Medina. And one of the first things that the that takes place once the Prophet and his followers migrate to Medina is they draft Wathiqatil Medina or the Constitution of Medina, which is in its different versions, uh, is very fascinating in, because in the, in the way that it tells us a great deal about, God, I mean about, it tells us a great deal about even the ethics and the outlook of the migrants and the recipients, the hosts, the Ansar of Medina, and it tells us a lot about the way that Jewish tribes were seen, and it also tells us a lot about those who did not convert, because there were a sizable uh, number of Medinians who did not convert to Islam, and their role will be interesting in a second. Okay. So, Among the things that take place in the Constitution of Medina is that the Prophet defines the Muhajirun, the Meccans, Muslim Meccans immigrants, as a effectively a one unit. All Muslims are a single Ummah. However, that Ummah is divided into the Muhajirun and the Muhajirun share um, a, 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 a political unity within the polity itself. So they, for instance, have economic responsibilities towards each other. They have responsibilities of the careful where they have to take care of one another in a legally binding way. They are also responsible for blood money in, in a legally binding way. Uh, they're identified as a as a unit, and they are have a clear um, representative on behalf of the muhajirun. And the Ansar themselves, the Khasraj, have six representatives known as Nukaba, and the Aus have two representatives, and they're tasks and duties are defined. But then the Prophet adds something that was quite profound and that is a policy of Mu'akha or transcending tribal boundaries and creating brotherhoods 
between people of different classes that crisscross tribal allegiances. And, and this is for a, a different time that we can talk about in, in more detail about this, especially if we ever do the CETA project, um, then it becomes very relevant. It's a you know, wonderfully complicated, from a legal perspective, from a constitutional perspective, a wonderfully complicated document, but this is, I'm saying all of this to get to the, the foundations for Surah al-Baqarah. Okay. So, it is not as simple as we often learn this in our Sira that, you know, the Muhajirun just go to Medina and there are the Ansar and then the Ansar just say, oh, welcome, we love you, and then they just live happily ever after. It was a far more intricate process, but that process was clearly designed to build up a sense of unity and common consciousness and a, a, a singular sense of loyalty among Muslims. And the Constitution of Medina clearly evidences a an expectation of affinity and friendliness towards the Jewish tribes. Muslims themselves, there's a lot of evidence that as the Muhajirun arrived in Medina, as they confronted Medinians, people from Medina who did not convert to Islam, they thought that the, their natural ally are going to be their fellow monotheists, and that is the Jewish tribes. And there is a lot that can be said about this, but it is clear that their early polemics were um, an expectation that even some of the reports show that they expected the Jewish tribes to celebrate uh, the Prophet Muhammad as the awaited Messiah. And we'll see how this is handled in, in Surah Al-Baqarah. Why? Because Arabs themselves had been hearing about an awaited Messiah among the Israelites, but there were a lot of mythology around this awaited Messiah. Jew, Jewish tribes or Jews generally have rejected Jesus as the awaited Messiah and said, no, this is not the awaited Messiah. The awaited Messiah is someone else. And we'll, we'll talk, we'll talk in, we'll see what Surah Al-Baqarah says about this. And the thing is, the Jewish tribes in Medina had been engaged in 
polemics with the Aus and Khazraj before Islam, before the Prophet came to Medina, about how they, there's a Messiah that will come, that their book predicts that a Messiah will come and that Messiah will unite, this Messiah will unite the Jewish tribes. This is not in the Bible, it's not in the Torah, but it is in the Talmud. And it is in a lot of Jewish mythology. That, that Messiah will unite the Jewish tribes and uh, after uniting the Jewish tribes, that they will, the Aus and the Khazraj better deal with them now because when the Messiah comes, they will completely dominate the Aus and the Khazraj and they will be in complete control of not just Medina, but the entire region. And, uh, it, you know, the reports conflict as to what they said they will be in control of. But, the, who are the newcomers to these polemics? They're the Muhajirun. And very quickly, the Muhajirun are, are introduced to a rude awakening that the Ansar were, was, were already familiar with. And that is that the Jewish tribes and the Jews in Medina had, there was no way that they were going to accept Muhammad as the awaited Messiah because of their firm belief that the Messiah had to be an Israelite. And that the from Allah's particular line of descent and that the Messiah could not be an Arab. Not only that, but the firm belief that they were God's chosen people and also a firm belief that only God's chosen people are entitled to salvation and that even if God's chosen people are punished by God in the hereafter it will be for a very uh, modest or moderate punishment. In other words, God loves the chosen people too much, while other people might be in hell forever. The chosen people would be, even if they were the worst sinners, they would be in hell only for a limited period of time, and then they would be saved. And this belief was firmly anchored among the, the tribes, not just of Medina, but we, as we will see, that there is this a, a, a firm conviction that 
God has already picked that God interacts as the Bible says, as the Torah says, that God only speaks to the chosen people, God really only cares about the chosen people, that the chosen people are entitled to lead humanity through the example of Mosaic Law, which in our language we would say today is also the example of moral law, because part of what Maimonides does, when my, as, as I'm sure you know, Maimonides is, comes, you know, 600 years later, well after Islam, and Maimonides, one of his main arguments is that the Mosaic law that the ch given to the uh, to the chosen people is not that the chosen people would lead humanity through a code of law but that they would lead humanity ethically that was one of my one of these big philosophical moves if you will and we'll we'll, we'll talk more about that because actually it, it Believe it or not, it is relevant. And one of the, Maimonides' big accomplishments as well is the idea of that God's chosen people are God's vicegerents on earth. Modern Jews will often talk about the idea of vicegerency or human beings as God's representatives on earth. But that's a late development. That development came along with Maimonides. And in my view, it came, it's, it's because of the Islamic influence upon Maimonides. Okay. So it's not the idea of God's representatives, of God's vicegerency, which is not, uh, but the idea of this notion of chosen people. And because of this, Muslims find themselves engaged in very um, well, sometimes robust polemics, but sometimes. Um, uh, uh, hostile, very hostile polemics, not just with Jews, but also with uh, Med Medinians who refused to convert to Islam. And in the first, this is all before Baqarah is revealed. And those who refuse to convert to Islam are posing their own arguments against the, the newcomers and of course the Jewish tribes who, and this is an important point, for the 
for the Medinians who refused to convert, a lot of the Arabs, most of the Arabs were illiterate. Literacy was far more common among the Jewish tribes. They were seen as people of scrolls. They had their rabbis who could actually read and write, not just Hebrew, but Arabic. And so there was a certain reverence. The, the, the Arabs who refused to convert to Islam looked at the Jewish tribes as illiterate people with a certain amount of awe and reverence. Um, you know, can we go as far as saying that they felt subservient to Jews as the chosen people, that they saw themselves as Arabs, as subservient to Jews or inferior to Jews? Um, there is a lot of evidence of that, but I'm not sure. I mean, they clearly, there was a certain amount of awe with which they regarded um, the more cultured Jews as more cultured, more literate, um, and so on. But then there is another movement that sets the stage for Surat al-Baqarah. And that is a new phenomena started very quickly emerging in the first year after Hijrah. And that is, there are some native Medinians that say they are Muslim, but don't join in prayers, uh, sometimes engage in things that are quite hostile. So, I mean, for example, one of the very early stories is that the Prophet um, goes to, um, what's his name, um, Ibn Salul, um, who was supposed to be appointed, uh, um, uh, anointed as the king before the Hijrah, but then is sort of, it, it doesn't work out because of the Hijrah and because of, uh, of the Prophet's leadership. Anyway, so at one point, the, the Prophet goes to visit Ibn Salul and his clan. And they are rather cold in receiving the Prophet. They're not very polite, they're not very hospitable. And after the Prophet sits with some of his companions, the Prophet starts talking about Islam and recites some Quranic verses. And Ibn Salul sits quietly and he's listening. And then after the Prophet is done, he tells Muhammad, what you said is good. However, why don't you stay home and wait for people to come to you before you talk to them about the Quran instead of going around and effectively giving people head a headache or boring people with your recitation of the Quran. 
not just hostile but very rude by the rules of hospitality of Arabs at the time. And in fact, the, the, there is a, a convert from Medina who responds to Ibn Salul and he says, you know, that doesn't matter, he defends the Prophet and he says, oh, we're always happy to hear what the Quran has to say. But it's clear that things like that bothered not just the Prophet but early Muslims because we have a report that a, a, a companion saw the Prophet afterwards and he saw that his face was changed and he said, you know, you look upset, what happened? And then the Prophet tells him the story and what happened with Ibn Salul and so on. So, that group of people, not just native Medinians, who have an ambiguous position, it's not even clear. Sometimes they say we're Muslim, sometimes they, but they, some, often they act like they're not Muslim. It's not clear what their status is. But perhaps even more seriously is that some among the Jewish tribes claim to have become Muslim, but they do so and they tell the, the uh, Medinians who did not convert to Islam, the, the, the unbelievers among the Medinians, they tell them that the only reason we converted to Islam is to fight it from the inside. And so to undermine the, and so imagine the situation. The Meccans, draft the constitution and the constitution recognizes Muhammad as the one in charge but not in charge of the Jewish tribes he is in charge of Muslims Muslims have an agreement with the Jewish tribes a common defense treaty that they will come to one each, other, each other's aid in case of a war and that there be no treason. But the system of taxation is separate. The system of self-rule is separate. Among the Muslims themselves, there is, you have to overcome the traditional tribal affiliations. There is this process, very novel system of Mu'akha, but there are very serious challenges. There is a health challenge. Many Muslims are becoming falling ill because of the plague. There is the poverty and joblessness challenge. There are no jobs for the Muhajirun. And the Ansar, the Aus and Khazraj have been depleted because of the long civil war, so they're not rich. The Muhajirun themselves, all their wealth was left back in Mecca. They, they don't have their, their money. There is an external enemy that they're worried about, and that is, of course, Quraysh. And now they are confronting the pol hostile polemics of those who says no to Islam, 
those who say we're Muslim, but you suspect that they're not Muslim, and Jewish tribes that say your prophet cannot possibly be a legitimate prophet because he's not an Israelite, and we are the literate and educated class, and we're telling you that it is a solemn truth that God would only send the prophet from among the Israelites and nothing but the Israelites. So by definition, this man is a pretender. He's a liar. And so what Muslims thought will be their fellow monotheist friends, it has gone off as a pipe dream. That went nowhere. In fact, the ideological alliance is formed between the Jewish tribes and those who refuse to convert and the Jewish tribes and those who nominally convert and on top of all of that are Jewish members of the Jewish tribes often very prestigious members that say we convert to Islam but when you look at their behavior, it doesn't look like they're Muslims. Now, in the midst of this mess, comes Surah Al-Baqarah. Can you imagine? Can you conceptualize it? I mean, we often tell the story in such triumphalist tones of the Sira. We love triumphalism. Oh, there was the Hijra and then, you know, they sang, they, they sat, they stood around and sang and then after they sang the song, then, you know, the, oh, the Ansar said, here, share my home, share my wives. And then there was the Battle of Badr, and then the Uhud, and then after Uhud, there were all these wonderful battles when the Muslims won, and it's a wonderful, happy story, and thank you very much, goodbye. Well, that's like, you know, if there was Hollywood, Islamic version, that's Hollywood. It's absolute batikh. Um, and nothing to do with historical reality. Historical reality is far more complex, far more challenging, and the Quran itself reflects that fact, mirrors that fact. And if you study the Quran and submerge yourself into the Quran, then you truly understand the miracle of its, its achievement. So, when you start approaching Surah Al-Baqarah, the best way I can put it, Surah Al-Baqarah is so, is such a, 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 a challenge to me, Allahu A'lam, uh, that I am just going to focus on my scholarship, my research with Surat al-Baqarah. I'm not even going to get into Sufi tafsirs. And I will only talk about traditional tafsirs when to contrast 
uh, to, to convey or communicate certain points. Because otherwise, we'll be doing sort of Bakra for another year. Um, so that's one. Two, Surah Al-Baqarah can only be understood, in my opinion, in layers of meaning. There is what Surah Al-Baqarah, the meaning of a Surah Al-Baqarah in terms of what it was achieving historically what it was doing within the historical context in which Surah Al-Baqarah was revealed. But there is further layers to Surah Al-Baqarah in terms of what it has to say prescriptively, normatively, for... So, the historical treatment from the point of view of a believer is not just for the sake of the historical treatment. The historical treatment is to communicate lessons that are timeless. And it is critical to understand the layers to... So, I will focus first or emphasize first the historical treatment and part of this historical treatment so you really sometimes it is not really possible to understand fully what Surah Al-Baqarah is talking about unless you also historically I'm speaking not prescriptively unless you also have knowledge of the Bible and what the Bible said and the way that the Quran comes in to draft a new normative constitution and so this is probably the only halakha that I know of in which at the, for the, probably today and probably Saturday in which as we are going through Surah Al-Baqarah we are going to also do a lot of Bible reading. Um, you can see the tabs here, right? See the green stuff? Yeah. And you'll understand what I'm talking about as we go through, inshallah. We're going to break to pray Maghrib, but before we do that, let me just say this, and then, so you'll come back after Maghrib. <laughs> Surah Al-Baqarah comes in, and it's like what Grace was talking about. Yes, you have all these challenges. Yes, you have all these difficulties. But it anchors Muslims because when, when you, any other situation, if you are migrants and you are confronted with this political mess, what are you going to do? in every situation what you're going to do is you're going to play politics 
and you're going to forget about the principles that you've learned in Mecca, all these ideals, all these you know idealistic, uh, unrealistic stuff about ethics and morality and all of that stuff, and you're going to do things to get results. You know, arrest people, imprison people, kill people, whatever you need to do to get things done. You can't understand what Surah Al-Baqarah does unless you understand that situation. Because it comes in and it's treatment for, you know, it makes me just, it's so sad if Muslims understood their religion. But the other thing it does, it's not just a, an, a, 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 a threading of the lessons already conveyed in Mecca to the new reality in Medina, but the other thing it does, it takes on that basic idea of does God have a chosen people? Does God choose people who become the bearers of the covenant to the exclusion of all else? And that, if, if you think for a tribal society that thinks in terms of blood relations, it, what the Jews said made perfect sense. If they're saying that God, if you accept that God chose Abraham as a prophet, and, and after Abraham, Ishaq as a prophet, then the blood of royalty continues on downwards. And remember that the Arabs honored Abraham and knew that Abraham was the father of Ismail and that Ismail, and okay, I'll say this before prayer because it's, it's important for us to, I don't want to lose my, my place, so I'll just communicate it right now. So, I don't, yeah, okay. So remember that Ibrahim السلام, is the father of Ismail السلام, right? And Ismail السلام, is he is the son of Hajar. Hajar is a an Egyptian slave, right? She is an an Egyptian bondswoman. She is, and because Hajar or Ismail is the son of an Egyptian who is a slave girl, the Israelites, and we'll talk about this, and they have all types of issues with Ismail's line, bloodline. But Ismail himself marries an Arab from the Qahtani line. So 
Ismail's progeny is Ezraelite from Ibrahim, right? So they have Ezraelite blood from Ibrahim. They have Egyptian blood from Hajar. And they have Arab blood from the mother, from Akhtaniyun, right? The progeny of Ismail, because of that blood mixture, became known as Al-Arab al-Mustaraba. They are Arabs, but not pure bloodline Arabs. Interestingly, among the, you know, it's now a fad because we're so messed up. You, you hear Egyptians that say things like, uh, um, uh, oh, we're not Arabs, we're, we're pharaohs. And it drives me insane. If, if, if Hajar was an Egyptian, and Hajar is the mother of Arabs, it, it, just, it makes absolutely no sense. But nothing in, 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 in so much of what passes for knowledge in the modern age makes any sense anyway um so the arab the the, the mustariba the, the arab al-mustariba those those arabs that are from the descendants of ismail their line is juxtaposed to those who claim to be direct descendants of ishaq sarah and ishaq and especially those who are claimed to be descendants of Israel, in particular, who became known as the Israelites. And there is, in a, in a society that values bloodlines, bloodlines decide who's going to be king, bloodlines decide who's going to be prince, Bloodlines decide who's going to be a nobleman. Bloodlines decide whether you, what your, your inherited craft is going to be. Bloodlines decide whether you are going to be a shipbuilder, whether you're going to be an ironsmith, whether you're going to be a sheep herder. Bloodlines decide so, bloodlines decide who you can marry and who you can't marry. Bloodlines decide so much. When Jews in this context said, our bloodline is very special. We are God's chosen people because of our pure bloodline. In fact, Jews often called their prophets kings. The, the idea of royalty and king kinship and prophethood was often intermixed in the Torah. It had a powerful, compelling, ideological force. It, it's not like in the modern age, oh, you, well, you could just dismiss it. No, you couldn't just dismiss it. And that is why a lot of the Medinians who didn't want to convert to Islam found in the Jewish tribes their best ideological ally. And that is why the so-called hypocrites of Medina, those who pretended to convert or nominally converted, 
found in Jews the natural ideological ally. And you would expect that what the Quran is going to say is either you're wrong, it's not just that the progeny of Ishaq were the chosen people, but also Ismail. Or you would expect the Quran would say, you're not the chosen people, it's the Muslims who are chosen, the chosen people. Those who love material history, that's what you would expect. The Quran does neither of those these. And that's why it was such an ideological coup. It does neither of these. It doesn't say, well, why just Ishaq? Why not Ismail also shares in the royal bloodline? And it doesn't say, well, God now has a new chosen people, a new bloodline. Okay, a good place to stop and pray, pray Maghrib. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. So, I am first going to, inshallah, I first go through with a focus on um, the the situational context, and then we come back. Inshallah, later on, and revisit some of the same ayat, but with a focus on a, the prescriptive process. So, let's just uh, begin Alif Lam Mim. We've encountered the, you know, we've we've said enough about uh, these um, kind of letters that occur at the beginning. Okay, ذلك الكتاب لا ريب فيه هدى للمتقين. الذين يؤمنون بالغيب ويقيمون الصلاة ومما رزقناهم ينفقون. So at the very beginning of Surah Al-Baqarah, ذلك الكتاب لا ريب فيه هدى للمتقين. The beginning draws the focus. On what this book itself will say. But at the same time, uh, 
a guidance to al-muttaqeen, those who are God conscious. Now, the very start of the book by saying that those who are God conscious and just we'll, we'll come back to this later on because it's, it's but situating you in the self-sufficiency and the self-sufficiency of God as the foundation for everything. And at the same time, the idea of guidance, note that when it says, a guidance to those who are God conscious, the natural question is to start wondering about everything that would what is entailed in God consciousness in being among the muttaqin okay alladhina yu'minuna bil ghaybi wa yuqimuna as-salata wa mimma razaqnahum yunfiqun notice with everything we said about the context it doesn't start out by addressing context unlike some other medina verses that we'll we'll see where it where it starts out and gets to the legal issue if you will or the political issue right away here in surah al-baqarah the first revelation and i like to say the first constitutional revelation after the Hijrah, it anchors the entire discourse in those who are God conscious and those who believe in the unseen. Because if your entire belief system is in the empirical material world, it's a non-starter. If you are one of those people who has to touch it and see it before you believe it, before you believe it, we have a problem. And as the Quran will repeatedly do, it's done that in, in Mecca, but even more so in Medina, underscoring time and time again the central role of Salah that which is a commitment of time and practice and energy in which you relinquish the idea that you are free to control how your day is divided and apportioned to at least accepting the principle that God is involved in the way that you divide and apportion the day. And right away, 
and the spending element, that belief, time, and relationship to material things, which we've already seen in the Meccan Quran, but it is of great significance that Surah Al-Baqarah begins with that. Okay. وَالَّذِينَ يُؤْمِنُونَ بِمَا أُنزِلَ إِلَيْكَ وَمَا أُنزِلَ مِنْ قَبْلِكَ وَبِالْآخِرَةِ هُمْ يُقْنُونَ Okay, so those who believe in what was decreed to you, Muhammad, what has been decreed before you, what has been revealed before you, and without a firm, solid belief in resurrection and accountability. Again, the entire dynamic of Iman is a non-starter. As we said before, most of the time, if not all the time, when a believer sins, when a believer strays, it is because a believer is not fully conscious or the idea of the hereafter and accountability is not fully present in the psychology of that believer. The phenomena that we talked about before, deference or the time delay. So, this is success, this is what guidance is. So, if we stop for a second and say, what did the Quran so far tell us about guidance? Well, God consciousness, belief in or non-dependence on material things as representing the full reality that the acceptance of the unseen which necessarily means intellectual humility because if you believe that well you know not I can't see all that is relevant and I can't touch all that is relevant. That is intellectual humility in itself. And your relationship to accepting that God is involved in the way you apportion and deal with time and the way that God is involved with the way that you deal with material things. And a firm belief the firm belief in accountability and resurrection. So these are the elements which we've encountered in Mecca repeatedly, right? We've seen this time and time again. And Surah Al-Baqarah comes and affirms these as the heart and core of everything. Then it moves on 
ان الذين كفروا سواء عليهم انذرتهم ام لم تنذرهم لا يؤمنون ختم الله على قلوبهم وعلى سمعهم وعلى ابصارهم غشاوه ولهم عذاب عظيم there are those that whether you warn them or you don't warn them they will not believe and again something that the meccan quran had emphasized vis-a-vis meccans emphasized again in Medina that there are simply people who are blind and they're committed to their blindness. Then, وَمِنَ النَّاسِ مَنْ يَقُولُ آمَنَّ بِاللَّهِ وَبِالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ وَمَا هُمْ وَمَا هُمْ بِمُؤْمِنِينَ يُخَادِعُونَ اللَّهَ وَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَمَا يَخْدَعُونَ إِلَّا أَنفُسَهُمْ وَمَا يَشْعُرُونَ فِي قُلُوبِهِمْ مَرَضٌ فَزَادَهُمُ اللَّهُ مَرَضًا وَلَهُمْ عَذَابٌ أَلِيمٌ بِمَا كَانُوا يَكْذِبُونَ Immediately then the Quran takes on the phenomena that we've talked about. That there are the new reality that now Muslims encounter is those who say they believe but they're they're liars that challenging reality that not that you are not dealing with um, a, a clear ranks of enemies of, and friends. وَإِذَا قِيلَ لَهُمْ لَا تُفْسِدُوا فِي الْأَرْضِ قَالُوا إِنَّمَا نَحْنُ مُصْلِحُونَ أَلَا إِنَّهُمْ هُمُ الْمُفْسِدُونَ وَلَكِنْ لَا يَشْعُرُونَ And This, the, these ayahs, 11 and 12, that if you tell them, don't corrupt, their response to you is, we're good doers. But in fact, they're not. Now, interestingly enough, that some of the most enthusiastic pretend converts to Islam would speak in and and this was clearly something that Muslims would confront it for the first time that they would speak in terms of um dishonest but how do I put it um, they, they, so for instance they, they would often approach the Muhajirun the Meccans the, and say things like 
We are very happy that we, Allah has blessed us with Islam. It is, Islam is the greatest thing that has happened to us. But then the conversation turns, or what they would start talking about is how much of how it is such a shame that the Meccans in Medina have to do the lowest paying jobs because Meccans in Medina often refuse to accept the money offered to them by the Ansar and simply said we're going to start dealing with the market and what dealing with the market meant is that the Muhajirun many of them nobility like Omar ibn Khattab had to accept jobs that would have been considered dishonorable by Meccan standards, like carrying, uh, like carriers, like um, you, you go around lifting um, produce or, you know, so uh, the, the type of um, uh, jobs that uh, would often be reserved to people not from honored or privileged clans. And those who pretended to convert would often go and say, you know, how could, how could Muhammad allow you to do these low-paying jobs, these dishonorable jobs? Uh, the, 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 you were, you were among the, 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 the elite in Mecca, or you are the descendants of this and this from this and this clan or from this and this tribe. How could it be that you are now working as emir, this or that, for such and such person? At the same time, people like Ibn Salul and his followers would often talk to the Ansar about the burden of the now we in Medina barely had enough to keep us alive before Muhammad came. And haven't you noticed that since they're coming, and this is that now the plague is worse, since they've come, Medina is more crowded, and as Medina is more crowded, um, and now that they've built this central mosque, and they, they, they are praying, in the central mosque, probably because of the Jama'ah prayer, probably the the um, um, uh, the contagion from the plague would get worse. It's, it's true that the Prophet ﷺ would have people who got sick with the Medina, plague of Medina or Hummat al-Medina, as it was called, uh, isolate in their homes. But that was you have many reports of these types of uh, talk which would sound on the surface like it comes from a friend. But the Prophet and we have reports companions like Ali ibn Abi Talib would express their deep concern 
about such and such person raising such and such Nara. Nara is like um, a, 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 um, a complaint that could easily excite people. And, and sometimes, in fact, the, it reached the point where this type of, these types of conversations nearly made the Aus and Khazraj start fighting again. There was actually a fist fight that broke out uh, when they started talking about uh, to, to the Aus and Khazraj about the uh, you know uh, old blood and old vengeance and you know this person was never avenged. There were several times where tensions escalated between the Muhajirun and the Ansar. And again, if we ever do the Sira project, you know, there are a lot to talk about there. But you notice right away after the first introduction as to the core, the essence, the Quran moves on to that reality of, of um, pretend believers and the reality of repeated conversations between the companions with some people that when you told them, you know, stop raising grievances. And they say, what? We're, we're just, we're just looking for out for the interests of people. Okay. This is 13 and 14. So, some of them who were, who had not converted to Islam, who often raised problems like this, they were be told, when they are invited to believe, they say, oh, those who followed Muhammad, those who joined this new experiment are, Sufaha are the, the dunces, the idiots. And, and then at the same time, there are those who say, we believe, but then when they are in private, they tell their friends, of course we don't believe. Uh, we're just mocking these people and so on. So Allah yastahzi'u bihum wa yamudduhum fi tughyanihim ya'mahun. This is 15. So Yes. Well, basically, fifteen that um, God will not guide them, and in fact, it is in terms of 
anyone, if they think it is the, the, they're affecting the dignity of Muslims, it is their own dignity that they own, that they compromise. أولئك الذين اشتروا الضلالة بالهدى فما ربحت جارتهم وما كانوا مهتدين. This is 16. That I'm, I'm going faster because I'm just getting to the to the ayat that are relevant to the historical situation. Remember, because some of these ayat are revisit later um, for the the ethical message. So this is 16. That there. They're, they're the losers out of this equation. Okay. مثلهم كمثل الذي استوقد نارا فلما أضاءت ما حوله ذهب الله بنورهم وتركهم في ظلمات لا يبصرون صم بكم عمي فهم لا يرجعون أو كصيب من السماء فيه ظلمات ورعد وبرق يجعلون أصابعهم في آذانهم من الصواعق حذر الموت والله محيط بالكافرين so 18 and 19, you know, this is uh, 17, 18, and 19. I will come back because it's a very power. I will come back to this because it's a very powerful image and a an important ethical message. Because it's also a striking image. The, it's those who lit a fire. And once this fire lights up the surrounding, the darkness that overcomes them is from their inside. And it makes you think to yourself, what is the fire that they lit? And what does it mean when it says it lit what is around them? And Because if it's talking about people who are liars, hypocrites, pretenders, um, a fifth column, um, you know, double agents, the, the image is striking. So what does it mean by the lit a fire and the fire, in fact, illuminated what is around them, but then the darkness that overcame them is from inside. So I'll come back inshallah to this. Okay. يكاد البرق يخطف أبصارهم كلما أضاءوا كلما أضاء لهم مشوا فيه وإذا أظلم عليهم قاموا ولو شاء الله لذهب بسمعهم وأبصارهم إن الله على كل شيء قدير. This is twenty. I will come back to this one as well because. It has an important. It's an it has an important message that deserves pause. Okay. Many of these ayat I have to come back to. Okay, so we're going to. Skip from here to all the way to from the from the first five ayat to twenty nine. The Quran deals with 
the new reality of individuals who either refuse to believe or individuals who say they believe but they don't believe and there is before it moves on to the next section it has a a, a tidbit um, with verse 26 إن الله لا يستحي أن يضرب مثلا ما بعوضة فما فوقها. Among the polemics with Muslims is particularly we have two types of reports. One that reports that are attributed to people to Jews who had not converted and. A report attributed, I don't remember the name of the Jewish fellow, but he's a Jew that at least uh, converted officially or formally. And both reports in which they say, and here the Quran is transitioning now to the Israelites in particular, and we'll see in a second, that it is unbecoming of God to use metaphors that cite um, how was it the report go that cite حَيَوَانَاتُ الْمُسْتَحْقَرَةِ Low Debased. Yeah, like debased beings. That a god. And this has this relates, by the way, to the to the to the the way that the Jews read the Torah and dealt with the Torah. But anyway, that a a real Abrahamic god would use examples or would talk about kings and and very much like the narrative of the Torah would tell stories about the rise and falls of kings and major events and one of the things they said about the Quran is this Quran doesn't tell stories like the Bible does it often refers to examples of nature, to spiders, to bees, to um, rain, to seeds. This, what type of divine discourse is this? Now, why is this important? Well, for one thing, to understand among those naive Muslims who who listen to the, the polemics of 
the Quran could have come from the Bible or the differences between the Quran and the biblical narrative are so vast that when I get a question like this, it's just you, you feel like you just want to pull your hair out. Um, style and theme and everything. Oh, remember, the way that the Quran relates to nature is intimately interconnected with what we've described as the Quran of nature, right? There's the written Quran and there's the created Quran and the Quran of nature. But that idea of a Quran of nature or a created Quran was very alien to the biblical community. Why is this significant? Remember when we talked about natural law in the Quran? Later on, what develops in both Christianity and Judaism, that idea of a nature as a proper subject of the divine, is transplanted into both Judaism and Christianity. And from that develops the idea of natural law in both Judaism and Christianity. But the part that Muslims are oblivious to, not aware of, and never deal with, is that it originated in the Quran and originated in Islam. I'm not saying this in, in, in a typical Muslim apologetic way of triumphalism, because, you know, kudos to them that they developed something with it. And, and you know, shame on us that it became an aborted, but we, that, you know, part of, of of understanding is to be able to tell your own history and to be able to no one is going to represent your side of things no one is going to do your job for you in telling the world what you had to contribute to the world the only people who can do that is you Muslims have been sitting on their behinds and waiting on others to do their jobs for them. But this is a, a very important part of the, of the entire uh, puzzle structure. That the reaction of the part of the polemics is what nonsense is this? Why is the Quran talking about things like spiders and bees and an ant that tells other ants to move out of the way? And, it's, and for it, it's, we forget because we don't know our tradition, because we're too concerned with looking for our, tradi our tradition 
for, you know, what's a aura and what's not a aura and what's, uh, you know, all the stuff. The, the, and they, they're saying, gods don't talk this way. And the Quran comes and says, no. In fact, God does talk this way. And God will talk about anything as small as a mosquito. And the reaction to this ayah, by the way, was more further mocking and further idea that, well, you know, if this Quran really came from God, it would talk about the stories of kings and so on and so forth, as the Bible does. Okay. So this is an, just an important background to me. All right. Then we will come back later on to... 26 and 27 because of the important theme of <coughs> those who break Allah min who break their covenant with God well, what is the covenant with God that has been formed? وَيَقْطَعُونَ مَا أَمَرَ اللَّهُ بِهِ أَنْ يُوصَلْ وَيُفْسِدُونَ فِي الْأَرْضِ أُولَئِكَ هُمُ الْخَاسِرُونَ Okay, so they break a covenant with God. They sever what God commanded them not to sever. And they corrupt on earth and this is all as a prelude leading up to the story of creation and then talking about the Israelites some of the Mufassirun I, I can't resist the temptation although I told you I'm not going to talk about other, but some of the Mufassirun thought well this must relate to actual enemies that wage warfare against Muslims. But at this point, there is no evidence that in fact it was talking about necessarily violent acts. Although I'll come back to it, but I'll flag this for now, is that the, the covenant is it a lot of them for Sirun thought that it must be talking about the covenant, the bay'ah given to the Prophet and or the constitution of Medina and violating the terms of the bay'ah or violating the terms of the constitution of Medina. But as I said, there was no evidence that that's in fact what it's talking about. But rather what it is talking about is the innate covenant that all of us enter into with God 
through our natural intellectual gifts. Whether these gifts are, these are the natural encoded potentialities that Allah places in us, our natural ability to do good. And our natural ability to realize particular moral potential and the failure then to do so, which results in corruption on earth. So it's not a coincidence that right after Allah says, no, I do talk about nature. And I do talk about what we've referred to as the created Quran, or the, the as as we said, there is, uh, or the Quran of nature. I do talk about these. Allah then talks about that mithaq that is again innate in the nature of creation itself. Okay. And then, right after this, a reminder, a quick reminder, that Allah has created Sabah Samawat, seven heavens. And I had actually forgotten about this. I know in my, when I was reviewing my notes uh, last night, which as I said before, were written 10 years ago, I had completely forgotten that I, in my notes, I had looked up, apparently, um, uh, the Sab'a Samawat in Taj al-Aruz and Lisan al-Arab, and I noted that in both sources, they say that when Allah says Sab'a, that in Arabic, Sab'a doesn't necessarily mean seven but means many that it was quite often for arabs to note use sabba to mean many uh, and I, I had just completely forgotten that then right after this we get into the story of creation and the story of creation right away that what allah says I've told the angels I am creating a Khalifa, a viceroy, a, 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 an inheritor, if you will, upon the earth. And they answer, you will give the earth to a being capable of shedding blood. And we praise you and we supplicate you. And God tells them, well, I know what you do not know. One of the important points here is that for Muslims, the, the contrast between the story of creation in the Quran 
And the story of creation in the Torah is, or in the Bible generally, is talking. And so in the Bible, we know that, you know, you have, it's this woman's fault who tempts a man who then eat from the uh, uh, a tree that is described in different parts of the Bible as uh, as the tree of eternal life or or other descriptions and then God discovers by coincidence their sin and then God punishes them by sending them and this is the original sin but the way it's treated in the Quran with this dynamic of that Allah taught Adam the names and of course names um, doesn't mean the names of things names they in 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 the medieval world especially a name of a thing is the essence of a thing that's why in in christianity in exorcisms when you want to gain control or dominance over a demon you tell the demon what is your name and if the demon tells you the name then you can exercise the demon because once you know the name then you know the you, you have control. So the name of a thing was the essence of a thing. But the essence of a thing was the idea of the thing. So when Allah says that Allah taught Adam the names and then demonstrates Adam's knowledge and Allah says to the angels, didn't I tell you that I know what you don't know? What this signifies is Adam's ability to understand, to comprehend. And that is why and this, by the way, this is not mine. This was pointed out by Mufassirun like Razi. It's also pointed out by Qadi Abdul Jabbar that, uh, that in name, it is not possible that God would sit there and give Adam a vocabulary, simply a vocabulary, and that it would be the rot memory that would be how. And we, how do we know that? angels don't have a better memory than any human being does you know so it is not an issue of a memory but it is the comprehension of things more particularly the ability the type of comprehension that enables a human being to re bear the responsibility of making a choice. Now, what type of comprehension do you need 
to bear the responsibility of making a choice. It is what we call today your rational capacity. If you don't have the ability to reason through things, if you have no reason, then we say, then you're not making, or if you have faulty reason, we'd say you're making a wrong choice. People who are supposed to have a higher reasoning power are supposed to make better choices. So this is all connected, you see, to the very, again, affirmation of the idea of the natural order of things. And this is why Allah says, Allah gives an example of a mosquito or anything beyond a mosquito. This is all part of what the Quran will tell the Israelites. Unfortunately, when people deal with Surah Al-Baqarah, they deal with it as if Surah Al-Baqarah has an ayah here, an ayah there, an ayah here, you know, as if nothing is connected to anything. But in fact, and the very idea of rational choice being the raisin the etch, the actual rat reasoning for human beings becoming the deputies on earth, is a singularly Quranic concept. It's not in the Bible. You can search the Bible up and down, you won't find it. Now why do I say this? Because Maimonides in the 12th century borrowed the idea from Islam. And if you talk to, if you know anything about modern Jewish theology or modern Jewish philosophy, so much of it goes back to the idea that Israelites are God's chosen people because they are supposed to give a moral example unto humanity. And they're supposed to give a moral example and they inherit the earth or inheriting the earth means that they are God's moral exemplars and that they must be God's, they must be the conscience of humanity and that part of being the conscience of humanity is that they could testify through their suffering that they are God's chosen people in that God chose them to suffer in a, to suffer, especially suffer, so that they can testify as to what is right and wrong, as sort of a service to humanity. So many modern Jewish theologians will say, oh, the idea of God's chosen people is completely misunderstood. It is not that it's some type of aristocracy or a privilege, it's actually a burden. It means that the Jewish people bear the burden of giving a moral example unto humanity. And they have to give moral example sometimes through their suffering. 
Here's the thing, though. And go and test my what I'm telling you. Look up and down, left and right. All of this Jewish, modern Jewish theology and philosophy goes back to the key figure of Maimonides. Because Maimonides theorized that into Judaism. Who did Maimonides get this from? Maimonides was raised among Muslims, has studied Shafi'i law, knew Islamic philosophy very well, and anyone who's read Maimonides, and sadly, I am sure very few Muslims have read Maimonides, leave alone read Maimonides in Hebrew, you, you cannot fail to notice the incredible similarities between Maimonides and key Muslim thinkers, like Al-Ghazali, for instance, or, in fact, like Qadi Abdul-Jabbar, in my view, and the Qur'an. Is it important for Muslims to know this? Absolutely. Because no one is going to write your history for you. No one is... Look at... Just do, go, do this, go to the library and look up how many books are written on Maimonides. And then see how many of these books are written by non-Jews. You'll find 99%, if not more, of all the books, tons of books written about Maimonides, and they're all written by Jewish authors. Then see how many books are written on Ghazali. Maimonides' parallel. And then how many of these books are written by Muslims? And I'm not talking about the apologetic garbage that, you know, comes up from, you know, I'm, I'm talking about serious academic works. No one is going to do your work for you. No, no one. I mean, this is the nature of things. In the same way that I'm not going to sit there and do a favor to, to another people, you know, you might get one off. Like, you know, here and there, a good scholar that become, falls in love with the Muslim culture and writes something that... But the rule of thumb is that people work from within their embedded consciousness. And the embedded consciousness of people is that they have a clear view of what is a part of the self and what is the part of the other. And Muslims continue seeing the self through the eyes of the other and have been doing so since the wake of modernity. Okay. So then, what time is it? 8.55. I didn't even get to the even the first quote of the Bible. Um, okay, I'll, I'll just say this and then we'll stop for tonight. Inshallah, we'll pick up Saturday. So we'll do our Bible study, Inshallah, on Saturday. 
intense. You you know more about the Bible than 99% of Christians do. I promise. Um, by the way, very few Christians actually read the Bible cover to cover. Leave alone actually study it or read it in Latin and then read it in Hebrew. But <sighs> okay. I'm just frustrating myself. I mean, you know, you, you, you learn languages, you sit there, you spend hours and hours, you're driven by a passion because you love your, your, your people. You love who you belong to. And then you discover something very interesting about your people. The more you're educated, the more they don't want anything to do with you. Which is a very alienating experience, subhanAllah. And, and it is uniquely among defeated people, not Muslims, but defeated people. If you study history, you see that this is the way defeated people are. They, they are, are all burdened by shame. Uh, every Muslim grows up feeling as if they carry the shame of defeat with them. And so they're not comfortable with their own kind. And because of that, they're always also on high alert what makes, what heightens their sense of shame. And the accomplishment of a fellow Muslim especially if it is on the type of criteria that impresses the people that you have an inferiority complex with, i.e. non-Muslims, it's anything that heightens your sense of shame, and all of this is subconscious, you run away from. And so, yeah, you get stuck in this rot until um, until it just runs a cycle. I mean, things change. There, it's all it's, it's a cycle. But it's a matter of how long you want to stay in the cycle. Okay. So, notice that We all know that after Adam and Eve fall, they're forgiven, but notice here, as Allah, no, where is it? Yeah. We said, O Adam, and Notice the expression here, as jannah Rashid Rida and Muhammad Abdu and a few others. Note that Jannah doesn't necessarily mean the heaven that Allah talks about as 
a reward for um, after resurrection. Jannah is any state of bliss. A setting in which Adam and Eve had safety, tranquility, security, peace. And the wrong exercise of volition was the introduction or consciousness of the evaporation of that state of bliss. Whether this is the Jannah, the same as what awaits us after resurrection, or a Jannah meaning a state of bliss and a, a some garden, but not necessarily the garden in the Akhirah, it's an open question. And I, I agree, Muhammad Abdu, when he said it, he actually cites quite a few authorities from the Islamic tradition. But yes, it is ambiguous. We, we, it, the idea of Eden that you have in the Bible, um, so many people just took it from the biblical tradition as identical in Islam, but there is a major difference from the outset is that so much of what the way that the, the, the Jannah of Adam and Eve is talked about in the Quran, it is as if it is a state of mind. It is as if it is a, a reality that we just don't know. We, we, are, we are not, and, and that they are absolved of that sin. So you already have a major difference in that the whole inheritance of original sin that marks life on earth as a an existence that is impure that is sullied by the original sin and the original failure in islam life on earth is a trust chip that we took from allah earth is not a punishment it's a trust. And that will turn out to be very important as we will see. Okay. Uh, let's stop here because we're going to get start getting into more dense things. Um, yeah. I, I unfortunately I, I have class tomorrow and I still have to prepare for class. Um, so that 
that's so maybe that's a good thing so that I don't keep you even longer. Okay, so inshallah, I'm done for today. You want to come do the the honors? It's not officially over until Grace comes and <laughs> says goodbye. Alhamdulillah, oh, wow, what an amazing introduction to Bakara. Um, it feels different. It feels like when you said even like, you know, the Muhajirun, the people arrived in Medina and had already received 60 some odd surahs and were they ready or not to receive what Bakara was going to give them? Well, it's amazing because then now we've received those Meccan surahs. And so, you know, I can't help but think about, you know, are we ready to receive and the burden of it. Um, but it's, it's such an amazing um, blessing, um, journey, opportunity, gift, um, definitely, definitely burden, but I, it's, um, oh my God, what an amazing introduction. And so please don't rush. <laughs> We're not going to do this again, I'm sure. Um, this is so special. Um, and everyone, please pray that, um, you know, Sheikh can manage juggling all the balls of, you know, the demands during the week um, and still, you know, arriving here to give us this incredible gift. Um, so uh, I'm so excited. Um, thank you. Um, sorry again, but not really. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and inshallah, we will see you guys on Saturday for another wonderful continuation. Inshallah. Have a wonderful rest of the week. Assalamu alaikum. <laughs>